episode eight of the BTB Project. Today, we celebrate one of the most incredible built-to-be journeys I've ever witnessed. The truth is, my mother, Margaret Peggy Gerhardt, passed away 18 years ago from addiction. There are many valuable lessons I learned from her life, which has shaped who I am today as I'm on my own built-to-be journey. You'll be encouraged by this episode and inspired by my mom's fight and determination to be sober. I love you, mom. I'm proud of you. And let's get into it. Welcome to the BTB Project, designed to empower listeners to identify their why and to live their best lives no matter the circumstances. My name is Coleman Gerhardt, a former athlete and motivational coach. I've had the opportunity to inspire thousands through my story and help accomplish what they are built to be. You'll be encouraged by each and every episode, and let's get into it. Yeah, when I blow up, I'm a sore high like Peter Pan. In real life, be living all my dreams. If I'm waking up, it's in a foreign You know, as I reflect back 18 years ago today and, you know, where I was at in my life and all of the moving parts that were associated with that, it just really makes me proud of not only who I am today, but also the person that's not with me anymore. You know, my mom was a incredible person in my life. Loved her very much. She was a great mom, but she certainly had her battles. And I'll just, I'll never forget at her memorial service 18 years ago, you know, some of the things that were shared in regards to her life, there was a poem that was written by a family friend that was shared to me, my dad, and my brother. And I wanted to start out today's episode reading that poem. And the poem is called Witness. Thy husband and two sons came prepared to celebrate a life a life of a wife and mother with pictures hung on the reception wall with her favorite bird, Frank, and his cage placed at the table in the lobby with a CD of the family of the father and two sons as they acknowledged the disease that took her from their long before she died. As they describe the differing paths they took, husband and one son moving from that house to a safer house, the home of a mother and grandmother and one son remaining in the house with her as the disease forging a lasting bond with her as she edged towards death. And then at the conclusion of the memorial service, releasing six balloons into the thin Rocky mountain air to commemorate her final six days of sobriety. Father and two sons, 
a unit still standing in firmness and in love, health, and celebration, inviting us all to join on the journey to salvation. Mom, I love you. You're a witness to all of the success that I have. You and will be one of the most important women in my life. God bless, and I will miss your beautiful smile. That poem is certainly something that I go back to as I am navigating my own built-to-be journey, just to remember where I was at that point in my life. But I want to really focus on the journey that my mom had. And I'm hoping as we unpack the journey, it will resonate to those of you who are listening. There are many people right now who are suffering in silence, meaning they might be a child of an alcoholic parent or a friend of somebody who is fighting addiction or might be struggling with addiction themselves. And the purpose of this episode is to share a story of perseverance and determination that will hopefully impact you. You know, as you look at 2023, just specific to alcohol, in the United States alone, there are roughly 261 alcohol-related deaths every day. And on a bigger scale, there's 95,000 alcohol-related deaths in the United States annually and 47,500 deaths attribute to long-term health failure from drinking. Those stats alone can be daunting. But as I share my mom's built-to-be journey, it will allow you to, one, understand some of the root causes that could allow somebody to want to suppress the challenges in their life with a substance. But also, too, it is a story of how to possibly overcome it. Addiction is an incredibly powerful stronghold on you as the individual who is abusing what you're abusing, but it also affects everybody around you. It is not something that is just an isolated problem. It has tentacles that go way into life and situations that isn't a good outcome for anybody. So taking a step back, you know, my mom was 54 years old when she passed. Going back to her childhood, you know, she was born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee, and spent the majority of her childhood with her mom and dad and two sisters. And a lot of that family dynamic started to create some really deep-rooted pain points for my mom. I recall my grandparents, my mom's parents, had a pretty dysfunctional relationship where both My grandparents were alcoholics, and my grandmother was a registered nurse 
and was abusing prescription medication. So there'd be many times that my mom would recall, you know, being mistreated verbally, physically by her parents as they were battling their addictions. My mom's two sisters were both alcoholics and I believe one of my mom's sisters was, you know, addicted to other forms of drugs as well. So right there in itself is a household that, you know, statistically puts her in a position to become an addict. Studies show that genetics does have a component to whether or not someone becomes an addict or has alcoholism. Approximately 40 to 7% of that risk of developing the addiction is attributed to your genetics. So having a parent that is an addict or struggles with alcohol, that's going to increase your chance of having the same problem by three to four times. And this is even seen in children that are adopted at birth by people who you know, did not have alcoholism or addiction, but it still is carried with their child. The likelihood is even greater if there are relatives with an addiction. And the more severe those addictions or those habits are within the relatives, it really puts you in a compromised position. So right out of the gate, my mom was absorbing that and had really little to no choice of being inherited those traits. And that's something that I always think about when I think back on her life. You know, also growing up in... Tennessee, especially back then in the 50s and 60s, it was not uncommon to be in a household that had racism. My, my mom's parents had a caretaker for their home when my mom was growing up who was African-American. And what I learned from her childhood was she developed a very close relationship with the caretaker of the home. And not only did she develop a close relationship, but she fell in love with the African-American culture and especially the African-American music. She was a huge fan of the Temptations and kind of that soul music of which her parents did not like or appreciate. So as you can see, we're painting a picture of not only what she inherited during her childhood based off of addictions from her parents and her sisters, but also the complexity of her parents not approving of the strong relationship she had with the caretaker of the home. So right out of the gate, my mom was at a disadvantage. 
and I'm not saying that these are all reasons why she fell into addiction, but there's certainly triggers that can favor her to those choices. My mom started drinking when she was 12, 13 years old. And over time, that drinking carried into her teenage years and certainly into her early adulthood. My mom was a beautiful woman. She actually was a pageant winner when she was 17 years old. She was Miss Teen Tennessee. And if I understand correctly, was able to be close to Elvis Presley and sit back on his Harley Davidson as my mom was pretty popular with not only because she was beautiful, but because she wasn't afraid to get to know even the most popular of celebrities. And that really segued into what she ended up doing as a profession. She had a tough time in school. She went to a private school in Mississippi where she didn't have very much success, but she loved going up to schools like Old Miss to hang out with friends and do what anybody that in college would do, try to find parties. And I remember her sharing the story about meeting Archie Manning. Yes, that is the father of Peyton Manning, Eli Manning, one of the best football players to ever come out of Old Miss and in the NFL. And rumor be told, my mom had a date or two with Archie Manning. Now, who would have thought that she would be able to develop those relationships? But I always knew as I got to know her when she was my mom later in life. You know, she took that skill set of developing a relationship, developing rapport and trust, getting to know somebody. That's what she did each and every day as a United Airlines flight attendant. And back then, it wasn't called being a flight attendant. It was being called a stewardess. And she was one of the best. But she didn't get that job by chance. She actually was pretty tall growing up. And back then, they wanted you to be a little bit shorter so that you could fit in the flight cabin while you were walking down the aisle, especially when you were wearing high heels. And she decided to say on her application because she knew that most airlines would want you to be 5'8". She said on her application she was 5'8", even though she was actually 5'11". So a little bit of fudge on the application, but she had a passion to become a stewardess. And it was there that despite how she was, you know, grew up and despite how traumatic it was, you know, with addiction or you know, how she felt with, with 
her parents and, and racism. All she wanted to do was help others. And I think that stemmed from her relationship from the caretaker of her home. And she was one of the best flight attendants, in my opinion, to ever do it. And she was so focused on making sure she was accommodating and helpful and going above and beyond with addiction. It's not uncommon to be a people pleaser, to take the attention off of yourself because you're hurting on the inside and you just want to serve and help others any way you can. And my mom got to do that for the better part of 30 years. And from what I saw growing up, it was one of the most fulfilling things I've ever seen her do. And it was hard on, you know, myself and my older brother because she would travel often. When I was a kid, she started out flying primarily domestically within the United States. But then in the later years of her life, she started flying international. And those were the trips that would take, you know, four or five days out of a week where she would be gone. And at that point, too, my dad worked in sales and often had to travel. You know, it was challenging because my brother and I, when both my parents were working out of state, we would often be spending time at friends' houses or, you know, my parents would have family friends that we would stay with. So there's a lot of disconnected moments. So when I look back at my mom's childhood and, you know, the validation that she tried to achieve with her work and then, you know, how I was raised, it shows me how devastating addiction can be. The self-isolation that took place with my mom really magnified to a point that as I can remember as a young child, there was moments of, and at the time I, I didn't really think, I didn't really think it was what I'm about to say, but it really was emotional and physical abuse that I experienced growing up and being my mom's built to be journey. You know, I, I didn't know at the time cause I was just a kid how much she was hurting on the inside, what she's been through those deep rooted struggles. Right. So a part of me, when I look back at that, it's, kind of the first pieces of, I might understand that today at 38 years old, but I didn't understand it at, at eight year old, eight years old when those things were happening. I remember the first time I knew that my mom was an alcoholic was a time she got back from a trip and 
somehow, some way, you know, made it home from the airport. At the time, my dad was traveling, so my mom came and picked us up at one of the friend's houses that we were staying at and, you know, could barely finish a sentence, stumbled up to the door, had no idea how she made it from the airport to the house. Right then and there, you know, at a pretty young age, the challenges that my that my mom had. So, you know, fast forwarding it to, you know, 14, 15 years old, it began to weigh on me that, you know, both my parents were traveling, seeing my mom, you know, drunk or in a cognitive state that, you know, no kid at 12, 13, 14 years old should ever have to see. And, you know, the fact that the family was not often together, you know, with my parents traveling for work and, you know, my brother and I, you know, not having the opportunity to connect all too often, I realized that a lot of these situations that my mom was going through started to compound. And I think that's really important as the listener that I want you to understand is one of the, you know, kind of rabbit holes that I've seen my mom go down with addiction is just continue to compound internalizing difficult circumstances, you know, going back to her childhood, kind of beginning to uncover some of those pain points to her adulthood and how I saw the relationship with my dad and eventually how I saw the relationship with how she parented my brother and I. And it's really interesting because when I got into my teenage years, even though I was in a state of dysfunction in my family and I knew my mom had a problem, I still wanted to support her. I wanted to understand her pain. I wanted to, I wanted to help her. I wanted to be a light and a a breath of fresh air from what she was fighting each and every day, you know? And so I started to do that. I started asking more open-ended questions about, you know, the past and it's hard because, you know, when you're getting these questions as an adult from a, a teenager that's your, your, your child, how do you respond? You know, how deep do you go? Because I know a lot of the things that she experienced as a kid, she was trying to protect me from having to relive those moments with her, right? But I asked those open-ended questions, and I really got to get to know a little bit more about the why. And I'll never forget, during that time period, my mom lost both her parents 
within a few months of each other. And it was by far the most chaotic, destructive, way manageable for her parents to pass. You know, her her dad first, my grandfather, passed away from alcoholism. And shortly after that, her mom became depressed, not having her husband anymore. And slowly but surely deteriorated with her drinking and abuse of prescription drugs. And I just, I'll I'll never forget the, you know, kind of the climactic piece to all of this is my mom's two sisters, you know, lived in Tennessee where my mom's parents were and my mom and, and our family were in Colorado and it makes sense to me now why we were here. She wanted to get away from that chaos and as her mom was about to pass, her sister positioned herself to take advantage of the estate that my grandma and grandpa, her parents, were going to leave. So you go back to compound and stacking. Go from childhood to adult life to losing your parents to having a sister, you know, manipulate and take advantage of the parents and it turned into a situation where my mom virtually saw not only, you know, losing her parents, nothing from the estate that was supposed to be left. And I will absolutely never forget going out to Tennessee for the funeral and as a teenage boy looking around that service and, you know, typically, you know, funerals are, are, are tough for anybody. You're supposed to go there to celebrate life, right? And all I saw was I was essentially in a room with all of these people that were part of that internalizing and compounding and addiction that my mom was struggling with. And I told myself in that moment that I never ever will leave the legacy of my family in the state that I saw it in. And that's the unique thing, you know. I'm sharing my mom's built-to-be journey. But these are all important and key aspects of the story that have shaped me and molded me into who I am today. So within that period of time, my mom loses her parents. All that goes down with her sister And my mom's life continues to spiral out of control. 
at this point, my mom and dad were pretty disconnected. I know often my mom would ask to divorce my dad or to separate from him, and it definitely began to happen. And my dad ended up moving in with his his mom, my, my grandma, and my brother found a family friend to live with. Just like what the poem was earlier that I listened, that I had read, was... You know, they went to a safer place. And as much as I today will still believe that we are a family unit, you know, it's tough to see them go because, listen, when it goes back to the emotional and physical pain that my brother, my dad, and I felt from my mom, I mean, that stuff cuts deep. And for some reason, I just wanted to continue to hold on to understand her, to be there for her. And what I know now is with addiction, it's virtually impossible to pull somebody out of it. They have to reach up to your hand. They have to assist they have to make the decision themselves, right? So in that moment, I decided to stay at the house. And I lived with my mom outside of when she went on her trips by myself. And I had every opportunity, you know, my dad... I have so much grace for him for, you know, wanting to do what's best for himself, but also saying at any, any time, any place you, you can come, you know, stay with me. And I decided to keep going after it and having that relationship with my mom. And it led to really the next phase of her journey, which was trying to be sober. And I will never forget, she came home from a trip, got home. I was out at the time. I came back. I was, I was either at a practice or a school event. And I just came home and there she was again, you know, passed out on the floor and it got to that intense moment to where I had enough conversations with her to where she knew that I cared. She knew that I loved her. And I told her in that moment, you need to get help. And at 16 years old, she finally admitted that she had a problem and I took her to her first rehab. And at the time, you know, we were living in uh, Parker and there was a, a rehab center that was pretty close to, to where we were. I can't remember how we found it or whatnot. 
And that's where my mom went to her first 30 day intervention. And at the time it was pretty dramatic. She had definitely some resistance to wanting to go. And I think the most challenging thing that I saw was not necessarily just getting her there, but the withdrawals that took place when she finally got to rehab. And that's really step one to any intervention is when you are consuming something every single day for as long as she did, you know, from 12, 13 years old up to, you know, 51, 52, your body's got to withdraw from that. And I just remember, you know, my dad and his kind of feedback as that process was happening um, it was pretty devastating to, you know, know what withdrawals do to the body. And it was very challenging for her. So the piece that was interesting to me in that first rehab was part of the process with rehabilitation is a lot of counseling a lot of, you know, digging deep into her past, but also leaning on family to speak into her life and to speak into the counselor to kind of understand the big picture of how this disease has affected everyone, not just her. And she was allowed to have one contact when she was in rehab. Um, Back then, you know, cell phones were available, but she was not allowed to have a phone. Um, No communication except once a week to one phone number that she chose. And at 16 years old, she chose me as the contact. And what ended up happening was... I realized at that moment that I was becoming a man much quicker than any normal teenage boy should experience. I was having not only conversations with my mom while she was in rehab, but also still trying to be a high school student, navigate social life, try to play some sports and it was, it was pretty overwhelming. I'm not going to lie, but I'm also grateful for that opportunity because it allowed me to continue to understand. And that's, what's just the crazy part about this built to be journey for my mom is I believe addicts just want to be understood. I believe addicts are desperately just wanting a platform to where they can open up, they can express a non-judgmental environment and 
that they can just lay it all out there and have someone still be there for them. But during that first rehab, she was a couple weeks in, went through detox, had a couple weekly phone calls with her. And I remember in the middle of that first rehab, she had left the property with another attic that was getting the same treatment as her and drove to a liquor store and she had bought alcohol and consumed it and came back to the rehab center. So supposed to be a 30 day intervention because she left the property from what I remember, she was not allowed to continue the program. So at that point, she went back home. She said that the leaving the property and the consuming of alcohol never happened, and she went back to work. So what I realized was when she was working as a flight attendant, she was you know and this is just a a common theme for those of you who are listening amongst flight attendants and pilots it's, it is an epidemic with with drinking and addiction you know i don't have the raw numbers in front of me but i i understand that there's definitely a a, a, a statistical theme of of use while on the job while not on the job but the stress that that causes, you know, pilots are putting in more hours than they ever have. And flight attendants are trying to serve and make people happy that are almost impossible to make happy sometimes. And, you know, it just became really hard to, continued to support my mom when she promised she was going to get sober, went to rehab and relapsed. And it wasn't even, I believe a few months later to where it magnified again. And I told my mom, I believe my dad and brother were, involved in that conversation as well as you got to go back to rehab. You got to do this again. And she refused, 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 said she already got help. She's sober. And we kept catching her drinking. Decides to go to a second rehab. After the withdrawal, I'll never forget the first phone call I got from my mom at that second rehab. So she was at the same place she was before, locally in Colorado, and she picked up the phone and called me and said, I don't want to be this person anymore. I want to be your mom. I want to love you and support you the way that you deserve. And my drinking doesn't allow me to do that. 
and it breaks my heart. Hearing those words come out of her mouth, as much as it was really hard to hear her hurting and feeling ashamed and embarrassed of herself, the amount of hope and encouragement that that gave me meant the world to me. And, you know, call me a pushover or, uh, you know, a softie when it comes to not remembering all the mistakes that she made, but just hearing that love and support and how much she cared, it made a lot of the, the sin that she had, in my eyes, go away. So she put in the work. She put in the work. She stayed at the facility. I saw transformation. I saw her skin, her hair, her her smile, like everything about her was better. Now, granted, outside of those weekly phone calls, I only could see her once in person every two weeks for about a 20, 30-minute session. And it got to a point where for 30 days, she essentially was going to graduate from her rehab program. And part of that process is what they call in you know, the, the sobriety world a, a cup-hanging ceremony. So... My dad, my brother, and I go to the rehab center. All of the people that are inpatient there essentially attend a ceremony to acknowledge my mom's sobriety. And we go up on this stage, and there was maybe, you know, 40, 50 people there, pretty small event. And it was in that moment that truly took my breath away because my mom was on stage. She asked us all to come up and she shared how much it meant to her for us to be there and support her for this ceremony. It wasn't hashing out what happened to her as a kid. It wasn't hashing out everything that happened while she was a flight attendant or stuff going on with my parents. It was her authentically just being like, I, I did it. And I know that each day I'm going to have to put in the work, but I did it. And she asked for forgiveness on the stage. She asked for support. And we were all obviously at that point, you know, crying our eyes out and, you know, going later into my teenage years, I'm like, wow, I got my mom back. Gets out of that second rehab, comes home, and went on a work trip. And I remember getting a call while she was on her work trip from a man that I've never even heard of. And what I found out at that point my parents were, were living apart, 
but I found out that my mom was, was having an affair. And this person was talking to me about everything you could possibly imagine about how much she, you know, cares for my mom. And I just, I, I really had no idea how to respond to it. And when she got back from that work trip, I remember, as it often happened in the mornings, she was she was a coffee drinker. And obviously when she was coming off her rehab, she definitely uh, consumed a lot of candy and, you know, tried to find a, a way to have that sugar fix, which is all part of the process of, of sobriety and learning to let your body be consumed by other things that, that aren't alcohol. And she had stopped eating that candy. She had stopped, uh, what I, what I said earlier about how she looked right when her hair and her face and her eyes and her smile, that, that all started to dissolve again into just that look. Right. So, there she was again and in a coffee cup one of those mornings after that trip it wasn't coffee it was white wine that right there was probably one of the most profound experiences in my life because imagine you know you got the complete opposite end of knowing they've been through trauma, knowing it's been a difficult circumstances, trying to inject positivity and support in those moments and then having that be reflected on you, the, the negativity and the, um, the, the emotional and physical abuse. And you kind of put your hands up sometimes and you're like, gosh, you're like, I'm, I'm darned if I do and I'm, I'm darned if I don't. And then starting to get some acknowledgement of, well, I do need help. And then watching her go to rehab and watching her make the mistake and then watching her acknowledging it and saying she wanted to go back. And then getting to the, to the mountaintop of being on a stage, watching her acknowledge that she's defeated this disease. And she's proudly hanging her cup and asking for forgiveness and said, this is the start of my life. To not even a few months later, finding a coffee cup with white wine in it. So at that point, I had a big decision to make. I either, you know, join my dad and my brother and leaving the house or facing my mom with as much compassion and and love as I possibly can and say, mom, it is time to go get the help you need and be sober. If you do not get sober, you will lose me. I don't want to be that phone number on your list anymore. If you continue to do this. So she got real serious about it. 
because she relapsed, the local rehab center would not welcome her back. And she had to seek alternative rehabilitation centers. And the one that she found is out in Baltimore, Maryland. It's called Father Martin Ashley. And Father Martin Ashley is essentially a very high-end celebrity rehab center. A lot of famous folks. You know, we've heard in the news recently and even seen a release of a book, uh, you know, Matthew Perry from Friends, uh, comedian Chris Farley attended there moments before he lost his battle to addiction. And so at that point, my mom's work was willing to support paying for this rehab center, which was north of $30,000 for a 30 to 45 day intervention. And she got on a plane, flew to Baltimore, Maryland, and was right off of the Chesapeake Bay at one of the most renowned rehab centers in the world. And at this point, even despite everything that happened, I still had hope. And she had to go deep when she was at Father Martin Ashley. She had to truly unpack all of the deep-rooted issues, the the counselors and the program was very rigorous and would not put up with anything other than authenticity. So again, I was the contact person for that rehab, but she could not speak to me as much, but she could write me letters and she just would write me you know, postcards every now and then and just talking to me about the success that she's had in her deep work. And I get a picture every now and then, and there she was again, hair, skin, smile. I was so excited for her. After that third rehab, she came home, and she was just the light of the world. I mean, we are talking about somebody that, Wanted to go hang out with me more. Wanted to, you know, watch my sports. Wanted to go to dinner together. Wanted to be more active with her friends. All the things that I knew of her as a flight attendant, I mean, she she crushed it as a flight attendant. She was always serving first class. She was always the, the, the bright spirit in the world. And it's amazing because today, in my journey, That's who I am too. I inherited those traits from my mom despite her addiction. So being the light of the world, finishing that third rehab, comes back home, gets heavily involved in AA and uh, having a sponsor and, and, and truly putting in the work, truly putting in the work to be sober. The one day at a time. Right? After all 
of maybe a month relapsed again. And I just remember looking looking at her in the eyes and telling her, you know, Mom, you let me down. You let us down. You let yourself down. I mean, what do they say in baseball? Three strikes and you're out. So there I am. My mom just relapsed for the third time, you know, trying to graduate high school. And I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to think. I didn't know what to feel. I was devastated. Started questioning my self-worth. Why would anyone want to be my friend? Why would anyone want anything to do with me if my own mom can't appreciate and love me for who I am? Why can't she get sober for me? These are all things that are going through my head. I remember getting a phone call from her, and she said to me, if I don't go and make myself right, this disease is going to kill me. And I'll be honest, at that point, I didn't know what to think. But some reason, and I reflect to where I'm at in my life today, my, my patience, my ability to understand, to have empathy. I guess, you know, it all really stems from having those moments of her saying she's going to, she's going to do this. She's going to get sober and, and supporting her and, and being there for her when she says it, what happened afterwards. So she talks to her work and this time Instead of having her rehab be covered by her employer, we have to pay for it out of pocket. And it was devastating. It was hard on my dad. It was a huge sacrifice for us financially. But that's what we wanted for her, and we're going to try to support her any way we could. So book another flight. And she goes back to Father Martin Ashley, puts in the work, truly goes after it, has some huge breakthroughs with meeting some of her peers in rehab that she just went deep with a lot of different people. And I remember she brought home after that fourth rehab her Alcohol Anonymous book. And she had all of the people that she went to rehab with from Father Martin Ashley sign it. You know, like a yearbook in high school, right? You have all your friends sign it. And she had her friends sign it. I still have that book today. And just seeing all the stories, right? Incredible to see, you know, the the woman that was the light of the world on an airplane as a stewardess to, you know, those moments that, that I saw her glisten as, as my mom. A lot of other people got to see that. And it just fired me up. At this point, I was in college. And my mom was was doing great. She 
was sober and was getting ready to talk to her work again because part of this whole process amongst all the, the rehabs is she has to go be medically cleared each time to go back to work. And I had spoken to my mom when she had gotten back and then it had to have been, you know, a few days. Again, I was up in college and I came back down and typically when I wasn't in school, I'd come back down on the weekends to stay with her and I came back on the weekend and we had talked about going to a movie together and she was just excited to, you know, go eat a bunch of candy and and just hang out. I remember driving down to the apartment that she was in at the time and I knew she was going to have a meeting that day. It was in the afternoon and... As I get to her apartment, you know, it's 8 o'clock at night, 9 o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night. And I'm sitting there in the apartment. I'm trying to figure out where she is. She typically was never, ever home late when she did, you know, when she did stay at the house or the apartment, she was always home early because she would. I kept seeing a flashing message on her home line. And I saw it flashing when I got to the apartment earlier that day, but I never checked the voicemails because of what I shared earlier with the gentleman that she had an affair with. When I was a kid, he would always leave voicemails. And it just broke me every time I end up listening to those. But because she wasn't home and it was late, I decided to push the play button. And the message was from CU Medical Center. And it was a nurse. And the nurse said in the message... Hi, I'm calling to try to find kinship for Margaret S. Gearhart. When you get a chance, please call. And I'll be perfectly honest, I didn't know <laughs> what kinship meant. I, I ended up like, looking it up on my phone and it's like, whoa, immediate family. So I called my dad and, and my brother and I said, hey, you know, have you heard from mom? And my dad said, no, nah, she had that meeting with United. And she said she was, you know, going to be back after that. And my brother said the same. And so I ended up calling that nurse. And the nurse told me my mom was in intensive care. And she said, you need to come here immediately. At that point, it was just a race of emotions. I, I didn't know if she had relapsed again. I, I didn't know if she got into a car accident because she was drinking and driving. Like my, my mind was swirling, right? So I drove down, get to the hospital, call my dad. I told him, hey, going to the hospital. And he said he would come down. And I said, no, just 
let me let me see what's going on and if you know because at that point you know we've we've heard so many different situations and stories that you know I I just kind of got to the point where I wanted to make sure I had the facts laid out before I went from there and I just remember walking to the ICU floor and the nurse met me out front and said your mom's in really really tough shape so my mom when she got back from that fourth rehab and went to that meeting a few days later to get medically released to go back to work. She walked into her supervisor's office and during that conversation, my mom was told that she would not be welcome back to United Airlines. And the moment that those words were spoken to her. My mom was devastated, shocked. In over 30 years as a flight attendant, with everything with her addiction, you know, it meant a lot to her. And at that point, she ended up going into what they call an alcoholic seizure. So sometimes what can happen is when you are an alcoholic that's gone to rehab and have become sober, it's almost the opposite of what I was describing earlier about some of the withdrawal she had when she was going into these rehabs. And she became so overwhelmed in that moment. Her body being so dependent on alcohol, on a substance. Her body didn't know how to respond to the difficult news that she was getting. And it triggered an alcoholic seizure. My mom then went into cardiac arrest. Fortunately, she was at the United Airlines training facility, which outside of meeting rooms, which she was in, there were two pilots at the facility that were CPR certified that came to my mom and began to initiate CPR almost moments after she went down. She was transported by ambulance to CU Medical Center of which those two pilots had done about 18 to 20 minutes of CPR before the ambulance. And then by the time she was in the ambulance to the hospital, it was an additional 20 to 25 minutes. And they got her into the emergency room. And my understanding, 47 minutes had passed, and my mom still was not breathing still without a heartbeat. And at that moment, after 47 minutes, the emergency team was pronouncing the time of her death. And as the doctor was saying that time, my mom started breathing again. So when I arrived to the hospital, my mom, 47 minutes without oxygen to the brain, 
began to breathe again on her own. And I remember walking into that room and seeing any and all medical apparatus attached to her body. She had over 18 liquids of IV around her. They had this this large blanket over her called a cooling blanket that's supposed to protect your brain when you're without oxygen as long as she was. Life support, ventilator, tube down her throat. I'll never forget seeing that. So I remember stepping out and calling my dad. And he said, hey, I'm, I'm actually pulling up to the hospital. And when my dad got to the lobby floor of the ICU, I just remember putting my arms around him and just weeping. I, I didn't know how bad it was. But I knew in that moment after seeing my mom that this was different. Speaking with doctors later that evening, after running several CT scans, it was deemed that my mom was clinically brain dead. And the doctors told my family that she would never be the same again. And the term that the doctor used was that she would be in a vegetative state. And because she was breathing on her own, there might be a chance that she could live and she could live in that state on life support for the rest of her life. But that statistically looked like something less than 3%. So as a listener, I've walked you through a lot and you're probably wondering, how is this a, a, a built-to-be journey? You know, what what became inspirational about about that moment, not just the, the process of, of getting to that point, right, for my mom. Well, here's the truth. What I got to witness was somebody that was very transparent and open in their life to me at a very young age that I'll forever be grateful for. And going back to that moment when the doctor said that she would be in the state that she's in. One thing that my mom shared with me in those conversations throughout the years was that if there was ever a time to where she had to have a piece of equipment to keep her alive, that she would much rather go peacefully than to be kept alive. My dad and my brother wasn't sure how to navigate that situation. And I love them very much. And I'm I'm very proud of, of who they are today. But if I didn't stay in that house with my mom, I would never know what she wanted. I'd never know what was best for her. So the following day, the doctors asked, what would you like to do? And I told my dad and my brother, guys, mom, mom wants to go home. She doesn't want something to keep her alive. She wants to be at peace. So the following day, the medical staff removed the life support. And at that point, she was only on uh, one medical drip morphine 
to help her with pain. They removed her breathing tube and all the things that were helping her from the trauma that she experienced that day at United Training Facility. Here's the redemptive piece. As I mentioned at the time I was in college, so after we pulled life support, I told my dad and brother that I would go back up to school and that I would continue trying to move forward. At that time, it was right around semester finals, and I needed to be back up there to, to study. And I told them, whenever you get any new information, let me know. And as I was driving back to school, I got a call. And that call was from my godmother which happened to be my mom's best friend. And she asked me, Coleman, what happened? I heard, I heard about your mom. What happened? I want to see her. Will you, will you come with me to see her? And I remember pulling over on the side of the road and I told her, you know, I was heading back up to school, but if you're able to, to swing down there, I'll meet you there. So there I was back in the ICU, and I had met my godmother there. And we walked back, and my mom was, you know, breathing pretty, pretty heavy and erratically, as anybody would do in the cognitive and medical state that she was in. And my godmother got to have a, a great interaction with her and obviously was very emotional but I asked her in that moment you know hey do you mind do you mind stepping out for a little bit I just I wanted to just wanted a couple minutes with with my mom she said of course so I closed the sliding glass door of her room and I pulled up a chair and I grabbed my mom's hand and I sat with her. So explain this to me as you're listening. My mom was clinically brain dead. My mom was without oxygen to the brain for 47 minutes. My mom had, at that point, been alive for five days after going to the hospital and breathing on her own but I knew her time was running out. So I really had a hard time being affectionate with my mom because of the pain that I felt being her son. You know, hugs and kisses on the cheek and things like that were were few and far between. But in that moment, as I was holding her hand, I put my forehead on her forehead I just told her, I love you, Mom. And I recited uh, Joshua 1.9. Be strong and courageous. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So the part that I'm asking you as the listeners to explain to me is... At that moment, her eyes opened and she started crying. 
And my mom mouthed the words, help people. She ever so slightly squeezed my hand. If my godmother did not call me to go see her, I would have never had that moment with my mom. So I go back up to school. And about 12 hours later, I got a call from my brother. And my brother said, Mom has taken off. Destination is heaven. She's going home. My mom's built-to-be journey led to a point of at her commemorative service to acknowledge her sobriety. Because remember, my mom was alive for five days when she went to that hospital. And then on the sixth day, she passed. But my mom was sober for six days. My mom left this earth sober. My mom conquered addiction. Addiction had taken her life, but she had redemption. And I truly believe that that's by a power greater greater than myself. God had other plans for her. And at her commemorative service, there was over 500 United Airlines employees. And after everything was done, we all went outside. And I had gotten six balloons. And I released those six balloons into the Rocky Mountain air, commemorating her six days of sobriety. And guess where those balloons went? those balloons went right over the mountains to the west. I was so proud of my mom that I did a Facebook post. And that Facebook post was to honor her. And it was essentially called, Can You Stop Drinking for Six Days in Remembrance of My Mother? And in March of 2005... I had well over 400 responses to commit to not drinking for six days. And these were all college students. I had even some students that said that they would stop drinking for 100 days because they were so inspired by the story. My mom was six days sober. And that I'm so proud of her for. The built-to-be journey of Margaret Peggy Gerhardt is something that I hope inspired each and every one of you. I'm sharing the story of her because it's shaped me into who I am today. I am far from perfect. I still make mistakes. But the legacy of my family lives on. Unbelievably blessed for what I have today. And being able to not only share her story, but to have her be with me each and every day as I go do what she told me to do, is go help people. I challenge each and every one of you to take those difficult circumstances in life, those those highs and lows, whatever you're feeling, and find the silver lining. Find a way 
to inspire and to trust yourself enough to do things that you had never thought you would do. The BTB project is an extension of the legacy my mom wanted to live. I am proud of each and every one of you. Thank you so much for listening to her journey. I look forward to continuing to inspire and providing content and ways to help. Impossible is nothing. And let's continue to get better. Take care.